Hello, this is Political Dharma. I'm Alan, and that music was from Joey Helpish and Patty Rose. You can find more of Patty Rose's music through his website on strpod.com. That stands for Spent the Rent, S-T-R, and then the pod is for his podcast, strpod.com. And I think you'll enjoy a lot of what he produces there. Um, today's topic is progressivism and socialism, and I'm going to try to differentiate those two terms and say why such a differentiation is important. But before I start, I want to go back to last week for a moment, and I said something that uh, was a little nonsensical when I was talking about minor parties and some of the problems that they have complying with state regulations regarding minor parties, I said that they could keep their voter registration up more easily in states where they had open primaries because those minor party voters could also vote in, say, the Democratic primary to help choose the, uh, the nominee of the major party without feeling like they lost opportunity. In other words, a lot of people don't join minor parties that they may agree with on a lot of points because they don't want to lose the opportunity to choose the nominee of a major party who has a better chance of winning. So if you are able to get into the primary without changing your voter registration, that's beneficial to third parties in trying to keep their voter registration up. Well, that's nonsensical because as I was not thinking at the time, uh, in states that have open primaries, that is, states that allow people who are not registered with a party to vote in that party's primary, most of those don't have voter registration by party, or they don't um, choose a nominee for the party. So either way, you're not really going to see much uh, of an advantage to keeping third party or minor party voter registration up in open primary states, although you may see an advantage where they can, um, depending on how it's set up, utilize that to their advantage. The reason for bringing up third parties, in part, was that I don't think the major party, particularly the Democratic Party, for those of us who identify more with the left, broadly speaking, is very open to alternative points of view, particularly my point of view, which is the one that I'm most concerned about. I find myself allied with progressives on a number of issues, but in um, disagreement with them on some other issues. And it has to do with the overall philosophy or political orientation behind what those terms usually apply to. Now, political terminology is notoriously imprecise because there are terms that are used by the mass public, and the mass public doesn't take a lot of care in trying to have clear-cut distinctions between them the way, say, a political scientist might want to have a clear definition so they can differentiate different types of thought or different types of political positions. Mass public is okay with using a term in a broad, rough sense. And, of course, in the realm of politics, people are always trying to alter the perceptions or the the um, mood 
associated with a particular term, that is, whether it has a positive or negative connotation. You can see that if you look back a little bit in history, not too far, with the word liberal. For a lot of people, liberal had positive associations, then conservatives made a concerted attempt to give it negative connotations. And it's going to be the same thing with democratic socialism, which is a term that kind of slides between socialism and progressivism. Um, conservatives want to emphasize socialism and bring to mind all the uh, the um, memories of the Soviet Union or our perceptions of Cuba and how they have limited political rights. They want to emphasize negative associations with the word socialism, whereas folks who apply it in a positive sense, democratic socialism, they want it to have a positive connotation. They're going to emphasize the democratic part and try to uh, convey that it has to do with Western European countries that have a more extensive, uh, say, social safety net like universal health care or child care allowances has more positive connotations that people are not usually as familiar with calling socialism. They usually think of these as capitalist democracies, which, of course, they could also be described as that. So political terminology is imprecise and has political uses either, you know, to attack or defend the terms and their applications. So I want to try to sort out a little bit the associations with progressivism and socialism and why I think that's important. First, let me say a word about the crisis in Ukraine. And that's not just because it's been in the news and it's an important event that could have repercussions for our future, but it's because I think it does tie in to this disagreement between um, certain views associated with progressivism and views associated with socialism, particularly a debate between socialists that's been going on for well over a hundred years. That is the debate between libertarian socialists and more Marxist type socialists. What's Ukraine got to do with that? Uh, if you look back a few weeks at my presentation on the crisis in Ukraine, I was talking about how the United States and its influence on moving NATO military bases closer and closer to Russia had something to do with paving the way to the current crisis. Now, I'm not saying that's the only factor involved, but it was a factor involved. Why did the United States do that, even though they are making promises not to move NATO bases closer? Why were they doing that? The way it looks to me, having followed this for a while and not just trying to delve into it right now and start out all the propaganda on both sides, is that the United States wanted to maintain its economic and political hegemony, that is, its influence, its overwhelming domination, uh, dominating influence over most of the world. And it saw Russia, because of its population and its military um, capabilities, as being a potential rival. So we made an effort to try to um, demonstrate our ability to move military bases closer, to kind of intimidate, and also to um, kind of circle in Russia and keep it from exerting influence over other countries that would give it greater power in the region. In other words, we wanted to encapsulate Russia and prevent it from gaining more influence 
in the world as a potential rival to the United States. There's oil and gas interests extending from Russia to Europe, Western Europe, and that's always going to be a subject of interest to the United States because nations today are so dependent on fossil fuels. What, wherever they get their uh, fossil fuels from, they're going to be somewhat differential, or at least um, they don't want to have antagonistic relations with those nations that are providing them with fuel, which makes it very complicated now that Russia and Western Europe are at, in disagreement about Ukraine. Uh, so there's economic and military, political, strategic issues at stake. Now, what's behind all this? Well, it's complex, obviously, but I'm going to bring it down to a simple, a simple driving force in the world um, for the last couple hundred years, and that is the pursuit of profit. Now, this also differentiates progressivism from socialism, how they view capitalism and the pursuit of profit. So let me back up a little bit and um, say that now that I've set the stage a little bit and said that this is uh, part of the Ukraine crisis, is this ongoing national att attempt by particular actors to gain more control over economic relations that extend across national boundaries, that is, control international finance, essentially, control the exchange of goods and services and um, the acceptance of currencies between countries as a way of exerting influence over large and large parts of the world. And that is that impetus comes from the pursuit of profit. I'm going to simplify this a lot because otherwise I wouldn't be able to get through it. And so there's a lot of factors involved that I'm not going to mention. And people may say, well, what about this? What about that? You're right. There's other things involved here. But boiling it down to what I think is not, if not the essential point, but at least one of the most important factors here, capitalism, we can define, at least in this respect, it's the um, government I don't want to say sanctioned because that sounds like punishing, but it's the, the government support and facilitation of economic organizations which are geared toward gaining profit for investors. And within national boundaries, that pursuit of profit can proceed as long as there's sufficient new markets available, new resources available, new labor uh, available uh, or labor available to industrial processes that hasn't been utilized fully before. They can proceed to extend across the nation, but once they reach those borders, it's inevitably going to want to seek profit elsewhere because competition is always going or often going to reduce profit margins. And to keep pursuing greater profits or acceptable levels of profits, they're going to have to find new markets, new sources of natural resources, and new labor pools, new, um, new people to get into the capitalist system. In history, you see in the United States continual expansion. We had a civil war between two economic systems, one based on slavery, one based on uh, capitalist use of so-called free labor, that is non-slave labor, and then the extension of territory from the eastern coast across 
the continental United States seizing land from Mexico in a war and then moving to extend influence over Latin America, the Caribbean, um, Asia, Pacific Islands. And uh, we had a couple of major world wars because European countries were going through the same pro process. The big capitalist economies, say in England, Germany, France, uh, were trying to extend their influence over colonies in various places nearby and far. Uh, Northern Africa and other parts of Africa, India, the Near East, um, Asia, and they came into conflict with each other. So we had a couple major world wars because nations had economies based on pursuing profit and that pursuit of profit led to ex trying to extend the reach of trade and economic control, economic uh, organization, the organization of economic relations beyond national boundaries. Now that's essentially what's happening in the world today. But the difference is we now have established international institutions that are not necessarily tied to a single nation. So it's not national interests, although they're often conflated with that deliberately by politicians, but we have international financial institutions and we have global internationally um, organized uh, companies, um, capitalist companies. Um, is there a better word for it? Businesses, global uh, international businesses. There's a word that I'm looking for, I'm searching for there. Uh, you know what I'm talking about though. So what's this, what's this got to do with progressivism and socialism? Well, it's their view of how to manage this profit incentive and the uh, repercussions of it. Not only war and competition for resources, but also the continually trying to push down the uh, returns to labor, that is salaries, wages, benefits, working conditions. They're always trying to uh, reduce the costs associated with labor, which puts people who have to sell their labor for a living in a worse position. That's a way of increasing profits and using up national resources, putting the effects of pollution and climate change off of the company into the public domain so the company doesn't have to pay for it and can show a profit. So it's driving climate change. It's driving the the degradation of our natural environment. Uh, so in all these ways, this pursuit of profit is associated with bad stuff. Of course, there's good parts of capitalism. It raises standards of living. And if you can spread those, uh, spread the wealth a little bit, people will be better off. And that's what happened in the 1950s and 1960s in the United States. There was a spreading of the wealth that benefited the people in the United States. And then something happened. And this, I think, is where progressives and socialists would um, have disagreements, particularly explaining why the turn toward a more conservative type of a government happened. In the 1980s, Ronald Reagan was elected, and that's usual, usually the uh, demarcation point for the United States turning from a more uh, FDR New Deal kind of social welfare, government-regulated um, economy toward freeing up the economy from regulations, um, uh, withdrawing support from labor unions, uh, cutting the welfare state, all the things we call neoliberalism, neoliberalism, neoliberalism 
another term which could require some explanation, but not today. Uh, why that? Progressives generally associate this with a political change, that somehow conservatives came to power politically and they were able to exert their influence to move the management of the economy in a different direction. Okay, so all those things I mentioned, deregulating the economy, um, backing off from support of labor unions, cutting social welfare spending, we're still in the era where governments are doing that, not only in the United States, but in Europe and other parts of the world. So the explanation is that politicians came to rise like Ronald Reagan, conservatives came to power, and then they changed things. Of course, the story is a little more complex. There was a preparation for the political change. There were business interests and a conservative ideologists who were working uh, through, really through the 50s, 60s, and especially in the 1970s with the establishment of conservative think tanks and academic programs and uh, the spreading of ideas for regaining power among conservatives. There was the famous memo by Lewis Powell, who became a Supreme Court justice, uh, about how to capture power and return to a more free market, freed from government influence. All that is true. There were all these political changes happening. But why did the general public, why did the voters support Reagan to such a degree? Now, one of the explanations you'll hear is because of the exploitation of racial tensions, that there were hidden um, hidden messages, or maybe not so hidden, in Reagan's uh, political program that appealed to racism among the white population. And that's an explanation you'll often hear for why Trump came to power as well. So if we if we explain this by cultural issues, that they were able to capture power for their economic agenda by exploiting cultural issues like racism and uh, subjugating uh, gender differences, uh, subjugating people on the basis of gender differences and abortion and all these types of more cultural issues. Um, then what you would say is we don't really need to, what we need to do is contest them on those cultural grounds because there was nothing wrong with the way the economy was working under the previous types of administrations, under the New Deal era. Um, there was nothing wrong with how the government, how the economy was being managed and what we need to do, and this is more of a Bernie Sanders kind of story, what we need to do is go back to that more liberal, not neoliberal, but liberal program of supporting labor unions and uh, raising the minimum wage and beefing up the social safety net, like extending uh, health care insurance to everybody through Medicare for all, more regulation of the economy. So the story here is that a cultural shift fueled a political change, which then fueled an economic change. But I think it leaves out an important part of this story, and that is that people in the who voted for Reagan, this is in the 1980s, throughout the 1970s were experiencing economic problems, particularly associated with inflation. So they saw that the government management of the economy was not working well. If the government had been able to manage the economy properly, they wouldn't be experiencing double-digit 
inflation, as well as periodic periods of high unemployment throughout the 1970s. So the sense was something went wrong in the 1970s, which made the voters more willing to vote for a new economic program. The discrediting of government management of the economy left room for Reagan and the conservatives to say that the solution was to get government out of the economy and free it up for capitalism to do its thing and make us all more prosperous. And by that time, it had been a long time since people had lived with raw capitalism. And so it sounded like a positive change, right? Less government versus more government because it seemed like something wasn't working. The government wasn't able to handle this. We had inflation throughout the 1970s, so we needed some kind of dramatic change. I think that's what set up the Reagan era. It was not only cultural issues, but the sense of disillusionment with government management of the economy. Why did we have the problems of the 1970s? Let me take a, a quick sip of my tea here. That is what's getting a little more complicated. And I'm going to simplify to some extent, uh, to a great extent. Had to do <laughs> with the international financial order, which was set up after World War II. Earlier, I said that we had two major world wars in the 20th century due to uh, international economic relations. Um, various countries trying to compete for resources, markets, and uh, labor with each other for uh, control of other territories beyond their national boundaries and for advantage in trade exchange between the countries. So at the end of World War II, recognizing that as a problem, they tried to set up an international order, they meaning the victorious allies, the countries that won the war, all had representatives. They, they came to the United States and met in, in a place, Bretton Woods, and worked out the new international financial order, creating some international financial institutions and uh, a, a regime of uh, currency. There was no international currency at the time, and one was proposed, I think, by John Maynard Keynes at this uh, Bretton Woods conference. But the United States insisted that the dollar be the international currency and it be pegged to gold. That was thought to be a way to stabilize international relations through international financial institutions and having a currency which served as an international currency. That currency was the dollar. Okay. Tensions began to erode, uh, began to arise as Western Europe in particular began to recover from the war. They were not able to compete with the United States. The United States did offer assistance and give economic uh, aid to Western European countries, mostly to keep them out of the sphere of the Soviet Union. And from there was particular worries about France and Italy turning towards so, uh, communism. Uh, so they gave aid and helped rebuild those economies and then continued to give aid, mostly in the form of military assistance. And the dollar became a very important source of currency because it was flowing over international boundaries as aid and then as trade and then as military aid. There were a lot of dollars in circulation, which meant that, you know, as far as inflation went, you could produce a lot of currency dollars in the United States without 
inducing inflation because those dollars were used internationally and not simply nationally. So it didn't just depend what you were producing at home. It was part of an international system. Well, as those other countries began to recover, there were competition in trade. There was competition in trade, and that was sometimes to the disadvantage of the United States. Uh, making a very long and complex story a little shorter, uh, it put pressure on the dollar, is what they say. Pressure, meaning that the, there was no longer the assurance that what the dollar would buy in terms of American goods uh, was um, that, that it, it was really reflecting the value of those goods and that it was not really reflecting the value of gold. That gold, uh, that the dollar which was supposed to buy you a certain amount of gold, it could be exchanged for a certain amount of gold. This is internationally. It was illegal to exchange dollars for gold domestically, but internationally it was supposed that your, your dollars that you held, say France, England, any other country held dollars, that they could turn it in for gold. If the, if the dollar was no longer worth the gold that the United States held, because we were at um, increasingly subject to pressure on our currency and uh, our, our, it, it was not as valuable to people as it was before, then there was international financial interest that saw an advantage in trying to move from dollars to gold and invest in other currencies which seemed to be stronger in relation to the dollar. So there was speculation on the various uh, um, comparative advantages of exchanging currency between different countries. And France started demanding gold for their dollars, that gold be transferred to the United States to France. And so this eventually led to Nixon taking the dollar off the gold standard in the early 1970s, and the international system that had been prevailing to that point began to break down. So the uh, international financial order began to turn again towards profit-seeking, and in this case, speculation, and competition internationally, not just national companies, but now trying to set up international business organizations and international financial structures in which Private investors can continue to pursue profits and rebuild an economic order that was to their advantage. That was one of the essential reasons we experienced inflation in the United States, because the change in the value of dollar relative to gold and relative to other national currencies created a kind of chaos where um, it was never clear exactly uh, which country was going to gain an advantage depending on how currencies could exchange with each other, what, what kind of ratio they would exchange at, uh, and it interfered with international trade. So they tried to set up an international system and uh, avoid trade advantages from one country or another. So it's been pretty much um, somewhat chaotic since then, but it's also been, uh, let's say, three things are going on. One is the continued pursuit of profit by ever larger and more global types of um, business organizations, which causes a lot of problems. The second is the, um, the effects of instability in the international uh, exchange system, the international trade system, 
can affect people's lives in different countries, depending on how well their domestic market is doing in the global economy. And then finally, the attempt by particular powers, uh, both financial and political, and military for that matter, to create an international order which was to their advantage and against the advantage of other competitors. So we see a competition for control of um, international financial arrangements. That's part of what's going on in Ukraine. It's part of what's been going on in the world. What does this have to do with progressivism and socialism? I guess I'll have to save that for next week. And uh, to give you a hint of what I'm going to say, um, progressives would say that we can go back to regulating the economy and taxing uh, um, those who have greater wealth, which is usually the investing class and businesses, in order to extend greater social welfare benefits to others. But you don't have to change the fundamentals of the profit-seeking capitalist system. That's the dividing line. Which line are you on? Do you think we can leave capitalism somewhat in place as long as we regulate and redistribute around it? Or, as the socialists would say, and I would agree with, we have to somehow change the nature of economic institutions so seeking profits is not the overriding goal of them. All right, I'm going to have to leave this uh, to next week. Uh, the title of it was Progressivism and Socialism. It turned out I was just talking about the changes of the 1970s and the, and the movement from neoliberalism to where we are now, still fighting out those battles. Uh, thanks for listening. I always do appreciate this, and I appreciate much more that uh, some of you out there are giving me comments and feedback because, frankly, I am thinking this through as I go along. You know, questions arise as I present on something I want to think about a little more, read up a little more, clarify a little more. And from week to week, I'm clarifying my thinking, which may be why occasionally I sound like I'm not quite sure what I want to say or I may slightly change my point of view from week to week. So feedback is very welcome. You can leave that at the... I haven't changed the name yet, the Allen on Politics Facebook page or in the um, YouTube channel, Political Dharma. You can leave comments under this video as well. Uh, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for giving me some of your time. I'll be here again next week at uh, Saturday morning, 9 a.m., live streaming from YouTube, recording so that those of you who want to watch it later or listen to it on a podcast can listen to it later. Uh, I guess that's it for today. Thank you very much, and so long.